Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast where women get really honest about surviving and thriving in what often feels like a man's world. My guests are wonder women from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real issue. I know this only too well as a female Southeast Asian mechanical engineer. I'm kind of a minority within a minority. I'm Dr. Shinise Omara, an engineer turned broadcaster. Throughout my career, I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation. And through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. Talking to these exceptional ladies has often left me feeling empowered, hopeful and excited about life. I believe silence will enrich you too. Every week, a woman in STEM shares her unique experiences with absolutely no pressure in having to promote her accomplishments or guard her impressive reputation. Because I've come to realize that everyone is just way more open and relaxed when they're anonymous. So I've deliberately disguised my guest voices so that we're just connecting as human beings rather than human doings. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of medical physics. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show because I must admit that I have heard you speak live a few times and I've just found your story so inspiring. How did you get into medical physics? So I think I, when I was uh, younger, I everyone told me I was going to be a doctor because I had an interest in medicine. And that, I think, stemmed from my mum, who's my sort of fiercest supporter and uh, greatest role model, I think. Um, and I, she, was, she was a nurse and I used to spend a lot of time in hospitals um, around her. And I know for a lot of people, the smell of a hospital is something that really scares them and is something that's um, not a, a natural comfort zone for them. But for me, it just reminds mm. me of my mum. So I grew up loving the the smell of hospitals. That's so adorable. Um, And because I had an interest in science and an interest in medicine, everyone just directly went to the, you're going to be a doctor. Um, Mm. And I wasn't quite sure myself um, if that was the right career for me. But because there wasn't any other visible career that combined those interests, um, that was the only thing that was really on my radar. Um, Mm. When I was at school... I was lucky enough to attend an event called the London International Youth Science Forum. And this is an event that brings together students from all over the world for two weeks in London and exposes them to a range of different science topics. And during that event, I went on a visit to a hospital and learned for the first time about medical physics when I was shown a brain imaging um, scanner. And that's when I thought, wow, this is what I want to do. I actually want to use maths and physics, not to do medicine, but to contribute to healthcare uh, technology development. Perfect. So marrying all your interests, assuming that you were good at maths and physics then? Yeah, I was. I went to an all-girls school and I didn't really have a sense of how good I was, I don't think, because I think there were some really bright um, female students that I was alongside and our physics class for our A-levels there were seven of us in our physics class and all girls obviously Mm. and we were all I think pretty bright looking back we were all really motivated and enthusiastic and I went to a a Catholic convent school so I was taught physics by a nun and I didn't think that was peculiar either and um I didn't really have, uh, since then, people have questioned, you know, the whole link between religion and science. And because I was taught my physics by a nun, I I don't know, it's all just, uh, it's not ever really been an issue for me. Um, So, yeah, I guess I was, maths I loved doing. I used to just do maths in my spare time, just because I loved solving maths problems. Mm. Um, And I was really excited about the possibility of sort of using that and uh, for an an output that was really tangible. I I never really saw myself as a scientist that would be sitting in a laboratory in a back room. I wanted to see where the impacts of my science could be made. Mm. And that's, I think, one of the most powerful things that drew me into medical physics. So how old were you when you um, were looking at that brain scanning stuff? 
I was 17. So Gosh. I was in the summer between my A-level years. And it was, you know, retrospect, it was a really critical time yeah. for me because I think the other thing that was important in my story was that uh, no one in my family had been to university. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up with two older brothers, um, which I think is sort of relevant to my story. Maybe we'll come back to that later on. Um, and there was no expectation that I would go to university. Both my brothers had left school when they were 16. Um, and it was my chemistry teacher at one of my parents' evenings that uh, said to my mum, I really think you should think about, you know, um, your daughter going to university. Um, and so going to that event, the the London International Youth Science Forum, not only just gave me the, the idea of medical physics, but it also gave me the confidence that I could survive in uh, that sort of environment that I'd come across in university and really gave me the confidence to apply for university and, uh, you know, not just for medical physics, but just to go away from home and go to university. My gosh, it sounds like you were trailblazing on so many different levels, not just because you were probably a minority studying physics, but also because it sounds like no one in your family had blazed the same trail. No, not at all. Both my parents worked. Um, my mum's mantra um, to me particularly, I, I didn't actually hear her say this to my brothers, but she said it to me all the time was, make make sure you can be fa- financially independent and that will always give you choices in your mm. life. And she didn't ever, she was never prescriptive about what I should do, but she was very clear that I should have a career and that I should be able to earn my own money and have my own choices um so I I I just grew up expecting that that was what I was going to do but I think the other thing that was great about both my parents was even though I was very good academically um they didn't push me they they let me go at my own pace um and in fact during my A-level revision I remember really clearly my mother would call up my boyfriend and say you have to come around and take her out. She's doing too oh, much. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was like the sort of completely the reverse, yeah. you know, of what you sometimes hear of, um, you know, parents. It was the completely the reverse of what you sometimes hear of parents in terms of, you know, getting their kids to study. I think she was worried that I was becoming too academic mm. um, and, uh, you know, I needed to keep that balance in my life. And I think that's something that stayed with me as well as I've moved forward in my career, just to make sure that, work-life balance is or juggle is um is you know constantly being reviewed I think Mm. so were you born kind of geeky (laughs) yeah I guess I was I guess I was my dad um was really good at solving problems and he, he was not a scientist and but um he he was great he was really interested in maths he hadn't been able to continue his education as far as he wanted to and so when I was doing my um, O-levels, he sort of did the O-level maths revision with me. And we used to sit down and work through maths problems together. And then when I went on to A-level, he was like, no, I think you've lost me now. Uh, I think that's, that's I've reached my limit. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess I was really, my parents are really great at taking me to the museums and I would just want to spend all my time in the science museum. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if geek was a thing then, but I was. Yeah, looking back, I was geek. <laughs> Academic, certainly, because it sounds like you just yes. loved solving problems. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing that you were probably a very curious child. Yeah, I remember having a uh, looking at a book that my parents had on their shelf, which was um, introducing the idea of the body, the human body as a machine. Um, so each chapter dealt with like the communication center or the transport center of the body or the um, the, the waste disposal center. So you, it was like an end, looking back now, it was like a bioengineering book. It's ju- it was just in really understandable language. Mm. And so that I remember being completely fascinated by that book. And, um, you know, in, in my era, way before the Internet. <laughs> um, I love the fact that you allowed yourself to follow your own curiosity maybe because you didn't have that pressure from your parents and so as a result you could really navigate through STEM just by pure interest and passion rather than following a prescribed path. 
Yeah, I I think that's a, a good analysis actually because I never remember feeling pushed into anything. I just remember being allowed to follow my own interest and instincts. And I think that stayed with me through my career, actually, rather than following a prescribed route. Um, uh, and and actually, when I went back after I had been to the science forum and I went back to school and said that I wanted to study medical physics, some people were pretty horrified, actually, because they were like, we've never heard of that. And what job would you end up doing? Mm. And are you really sure you want to do physics as a degree? Because it involved me doing a physics degree. Um, and so, yeah, it was no one that I was talking to about this understood what I was doing, but I knew myself that that's what was, you know, that's where I'd had my light bulb moment in understanding Mm. that, that, that topic. So, um, I, I guess I had to be pretty clear minded that it didn't really matter what other people thought I was just going to do it anyway. Oh my gosh. We need to come back to that. Um, but uh, my thoughts when you were describing um those two weeks that you spent uh off curriculum basically um Mm. was just so pivotal and it sounds like those two weeks really allowed you to think outside of the box yeah so I guess you know we are constrained as as pupils at school by you know the textbooks and the prescribed practical experiments that we do as part of the curriculum Mm. and to be suddenly thrown into an environment where I was learning about cutting edge science and technology and engineering from the people who were doing it and then literally going into their laboratories and institutions and seeing it with my own eyes it was like a whole different way of thinking about science and and also then to be in an environment where 24 hours a day you were surrounded by other young people who were massively passionate about science um in a way that I hadn't been before um yeah I was it was just mind-blowing and it you know I often refer to that event changing my life and that sounds very dramatic but it, it absolutely did it makes one wonder about the approach we take in educating young people into STEM yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, I'm reflecting back to an era pre-internet where accessing information for me was was pretty much restricted to going to the library or my parents had invested in, you know, they couldn't afford them, I don't think, but they'd invested in the uh, Children's Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, which was our yeah. reference point for lots of the work that we did. Um, and so we didn't know at the time that, you know, that... that you know, that there was so much more information than we were able to have access to. And I think that, you know, there's a lot more that needs to be done to think about teaching and learning um, in this era, where the way in which young people want to access information and can access information is completely revolutionised now. So Mm. I, I think as, you know, as science educators, there's a lot that we should really be learning from young people about the best way of you know engaging them with these topics much much younger yeah we have to educate ourselves on how to educate young people I think yeah definitely so I mean I'm a great believer that you know um my children's generation were born bilingual in technology in a way that I wasn't Mm. so you know for us to impose the metrics of uh both teaching and assessment that we're familiar with on them is is just in many ways not appropriate because the way in which they've come into this technological world is very different to the way that we had to learn it. They just know it, just you know, yeah. which is an enormously powerful tool for them to have at their disposal to go off and be the next generation of of scientists. And you know, it's it's going to be so impactful in the way that they're going to change the world I'm an optimist right so I believe that they're going to do great things with that yeah yeah I mean I love the way you talk about it being a language because it really is I mean coding and various other um, languages in STEM are the new way of perceiving the world and if we just think about maths, I, I've always, you know, I guess right from the beginning thought about maths as the language, of, particularly of physics. 
Um, it's the, in many ways, mm. you know, quantum mechanics is, is a good example. You can only really properly explain quantum mechanics through the language of maths. And having, you know, your eyes open to that really early and f- for this, you know, younger generation, just having them not being afraid of it, you know. You know, I remember yeah. being afraid of technology, thinking, am I going to be able to code? Am I going to be able to work a computer? You know, do I really understand you know, the internet and each new language that came on. And, you know, whereas I just think they're so much less phased by all of that than we were. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, sort of my generation is probably very intimidated by all the topics of quantum computing and machine learning and deep learning and things like that. It just sounds Mm. so foreign. But to younger generations, um, they can easily wrap their head around it because it is a completely different way of thinking. Yeah, and they're used to handling, you know, they don't really realise they're doing it, but they're used to handling pretty massive amounts of information on a daily basis and data. You know, Mm. they're used to sharing files all the time with each other and videos and photos and having instant access and understanding bandwidths and where they're going to get the best signal and, you know, how they're going to converge lots of information in something, you know, that might only last 90 seconds, but you grab someone's attention. You know, they've learned those skills along the way. And um, I think that's extremely powerful for them. So something that is timeless is caring about what other people think of us. Um, How have you handled that? Because you seem to have really been encouraged by your parents to become responsible for your own decisions. Yeah, I think I learned an awful lot from my mother, who is quite a strong, has quite a strong character. And um, I think she instilled quite a lot of confidence in me I didn't quite realize necessarily at the time um Mm. I think you know I yeah everyone doubts themselves uh and we can doubt maybe sometimes the way that we go about uh doing things but we can't keep doubting the path that we're on does that make sense like you can say you know, for example, I want to study, you know, medical physics, and I, that's my passion and my interest. And even though lots of people might be deflecting me from that, I know that that's what I want to do. But that doesn't mean that along the way, you don't doubt, you know, have I chosen the right degree? Have I chosen the right university? Is this the right next step for me in terms of, you know, a PhD? Should I be getting experience in, you know, this institution or that institution? But the central path that sort of pulls you through all those decisions, I think that's the thing that I've, you know, I've never doubted that. I've just never doubted that I love this topic. Um, Mm. But that doesn't mean there's not been a lot of uncertainties along the way. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely crucial, really understanding that difference, because let's just say, for example, you decide to study physics. Um, you can choose to study physics, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy just because you've chosen to study physics. And I think when you have those challenges along the way, um, it's powering through those challenges, knowing that even though it is challenging, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. No, and even though other people, they can impose sometimes their insecurities on you. So I, I remember really clearly people saying to me, um you actually going to do a physics degree like that's really hard that you know like that's the hardest degree that you could do Mm. I didn't feel like that myself because if someone had said to me you have to do a degree in the history of art I you know I would have felt sick in my stomach thinking I I can't think of anything harder to do because that's just something I would find incredibly difficult to do Um, Or if I had to learn a language, right, you know, that would be a massive challenge for me. I don't think my brain is wired particularly well in that direction. Um, So but for other people who may be insecure about their abilities in maths and physics, you know, they they can sometimes superimpose those things on you. And so you have to just be really clear on your own mind and think, no, no, no. From your perspective, it looks difficult. From my perspective, it looks like something I'm really willing to throw myself into. Mm. 
Um, so I guess by the age of 17 or around about, or I guess leading up to that pivotal moment when you decided what you wanted to do, um, you were really asking yourself what your purpose is, I guess. Yes, I was. So I, I guess the other thing that might be relevant here is that I come from a family who all have worked in the emergency services. My Both of my parents and both of my older brothers were um, working uh, in the emergency services and did for their whole careers. They're all retired now. Um, so I guess I grew up with a sense of... Um, you know there is a purpose to what we do and what we what we do can impact other people very directly um there was yeah. a sort of joke in our household that when the phone rang you know you'd pick it up and go you know which service do you require 999 which service do you require uh, because we had all of them yeah. represented in the household um so <laughs> i think that was probably where the doctor thing came from partly you know um yeah. so it never really and also this sense of life and death yeah and and sort of the fact that you can make a difference i i you know i really really remember my parents coming home they were both on shift work and then my brothers when they were at home also and they'd come home and they wouldn't necessarily always talk about what they've been dealing with during the day but i got the sense that you know there were pretty big things that they were dealing with um and they just had to they had to just get on and 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 deal with them you know um and that had an impact on them uh, sometimes that I saw um but that you know you equip yourself you train yourself and you go in and you do your very best in what can be sometimes very difficult situations so mm. it's really fascinating to hear you speak about your childhood because um I really get a strong sense of your self-belief um, and it must have come, you know, at least in part from the way you were nurtured. Yeah, I think also there's something in there about um, having two older brothers who were very pretty strong characters and quite very they were very close in age. And um, it was the, probably the classic, you know, I was the annoying little sister. And if I didn't hold my own, my voice wouldn't be heard. Right. So yeah. I was used to making my voice heard and having my opinion noticed. Otherwise, I would have got pretty drowned out, I think. <laughs> so mm. and and I but I do also think that as part of that, my mum was pretty good at, you know, stopping the conversation to allow my voice to be heard. So mm. I think that looking back was really important. You know, she she was never someone that said, oh, you know, um, just be quiet or, you know, just, you know, let everyone else have their say. She'd be like, no, what do you think? You know, what, what's, uh, we want to, we want to hear your contribution. So um, I think that probably did give me a self of, a, a sense of my own voice and a sense of my own um, opinion being important. Mm. Gosh, she sounds absolutely epic as a mother, I must say. She, yeah, she's, she's pretty extraordinary. And, and also the other thing that she remains um, to this day is incredibly uh, optimistic about um, young people and um, and really it's sort of that sense of empowering, you know, young people to sort of be who they can be. Um, I still see that now with her, you know, all of our extended family. They go to her for so many different reasons, counsel and opinion and sort of support and she's just such a huge cornerstone of the family. Mm. So how did her influence and your experiences um, help you in dealing with being a minority as in you know one of very few women in physics? So yeah so I went from this environment in school where there were seven of us studying physics and we were all female to going to university and there were 110 students on our undergraduate physics degree and 10 of us were female wow and yeah huh. so that was a bit of that was a shock in one way um but I think the other thing was that um you know when I had been at school um 
just having a game, my older brothers and lots of their friends coming around. I was, you know, pretty happy in male company. It wasn't something that I was pretty, I was pretty used to, you know, being around boys my own age or slightly older. Um, so, but I did start to think, oh, every people are looking at us differently. Like we're the girls in the room in inverted commas. And I thought, why are they, I just, it might, I can honestly remember thinking, why are they doing that? That's like a really odd reaction, you know, that they're looking at us differently because we're girls. <laughs> you were thinking they were strange. Yeah. And, rather than you were strange. Exactly. I thought their reaction was strange. And then I guess, you know, it, you know, that's when I realised, oh, right, okay. So this is what sexism feels like because they're looking at me differently only because I'm a woman. Mm. Um, did it make you self-conscious? It did. It made me self-conscious about thinking that my performance then was going to be judged uh, more acutely than if I was a boy. Um, and it must have I, been quite a stark contrast because you came from an all-girls school to yeah. that environment. So Yeah, and, and I, I never had any sense of, uh, prior to that, I, you know, you just did your best and you got congratulated or rewarded on how well mm. you'd done. Um, whereas I, I think I picked up pretty quickly that, you know, perhaps my best, I was going to have to be better than a lot of the boys to, to really be noticed as being good. Um, and I remember thinking that was just ridiculously unfair. And also it was my first taster of visibility because, and that has stayed with me through my whole career in that if you're a minority, you're visible. Some people think you disappear. I've never felt that. I felt like if I'm if if I'm in a meeting and I'm the only woman, you're glaringly um, obvious. It, it's glaringly obvious. Just you know, and people remember your name because you're not Dave, Steve, Pete, John, Paul. You know, you're the one female name in the room, and everyone just remembers that name, right? Mm. So, and I remember that when I was a student, thinking. Uh, you know, there's that sort of lens that, that focuses on your achievement in a way that I hadn't really felt before. And because I hadn't ever had that from my parents. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, I started to think, oh my God, now I'm, you know, this this sort of peer pressure, yeah. if you like, is is coming on me that I'd never really had. So I didn't have that at school. I was very lucky in retrospect, I never had that at school. Um yeah, so that was I think that was when I started to realise that. Um, it was going to be different for me. But it sounded, it sounds like it boosted you rather than kind of um, cut you down. Yeah, I don't remember being sh sort of shrunken by mm. it, shrunk by, is that the right? Shrunk by it. I just, I just remember thinking, um, I want to do this still. You know, I really want to do this. I want to do medical physics and I'm going to have to get this degree to do this. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I just, I just thought, well, you know, we're just going to have to dig in and do it. And I remember becoming a, um, a staff student rep. You know, you get these staff student consultative committees, and I, I volunteered to to be the representative for our cohort. Um, and I think I found that quite useful. But then I realised early on that, and this is still true now in my career, that if you become somebody who sort of goes outside the academic, the pure academic route. And you start taking on like what I would call an enabling role in that sense. You know, you're thinking about how can we best represent the views of the students and, you know, think about the, the sort of student community more broadly. Um, then people immediately cut you down and say you can't be very serious about your academic work. And then if you're spending time mm. doing that, you know, so that was my yeah. first taster of that uh, sort of cut down, you know. Uh, yeah. This constant judgment of your worth and proving that you must be completely dedicated to your academic and any academics and anything that you do outside of that, you know, what automatically dilutes that academic work that mm. you're doing, which is the most crazy, you know, perspective, I think, but it's very real. Um, How have you managed to deflect those judgments? Um, I think because, again, I was brought up with a sense of balance, um, that it wasn't academics at all cost. You know, there are other things in your life and those things are really important. And again, God, it's amazing how I'm surprising myself at how constantly I'm referring to my mother, but it's true. So the other thing she always sort of said to me was, you know, no one's indispensable. You know, you could give your life to your job 
Um, and when you retire, pretty pretty soon people f- will forget that you were there. They might not forget what you did, but you know they'll they'll get over the fact you're not there anymore. And if you got run over by a bus tomorrow, you know they'd get on with it without you. You know, so make sure you have a balance in your life where you're not giving everything to you know uh, to one part of your life. And um, mm. and so I I guess I got through that by thinking, well, this is what I think I need to keep balance in my life. Right. And, you know, so. Is that- it's a bit like that concept of put your own oxygen mask on before helping others. Yeah, that that's a really good analogy. And, and, and that sense of you're the only person that really understands your own well-being and what you need to feed that well-being. Mm. And again, it's a bit like people judging my, you know, degree, uh, choice of degree. They're, they're looking at it entirely from their own perspective. And if they start to judge how I spend my time, that's also from their perspective. But, you know, I know what I need to keep healthy, you know, body and soul and mind. Mm. And and that's actually, you know, knowing that and that so that does not come overnight. Right. You you stumble and you fall and you make lots of mistakes and you burn out and you, you know, you have real sort of crashing self-doubt. All of those things are part of learning. What do I need to keep myself in a in a good place to be able to deliver on all of the different fronts that I want to be able to deliver. Mm. Yeah, I must say your words are so inspiring because I think some people listen to others because they don't want to come across as being selfish. But Mm. I don't get a sense of you being selfish at all. In fact, I just hear you as being utterly selfless in the sense that you are giving your career um everything in order to help other people yeah I guess I don't I mean I'm in the lucky position that I love what I do and so you know the idea that I can do that and that hopefully it has positive benefits for others um is is really good um I think this I think this touching on this idea of being selfish and selfless is interesting I think it's okay to be selfish if that enables you to protect the part of yourself that you know needs nurturing to enable you to do the bigger things you want to do so I've learned that it's okay to say um you know I'm really sorry I you know I'd love to say yes to your invitation but on that day, you know, I won't be at work uh, and I'll be doing something else because I know that I'm going to need to do that so that I keep the balance in my life to say yes to all the other things that I might be asked to do. So in that moment, it feels pretty selfish, right? Um, But I think if you just, you know, balance it out and, you know, think about the bigger picture, um, you need to be able to be selfish in those moments. And, you know, I'm, I'm often mentoring um early career scientists and particularly female scientists and i i say to them really clearly there are parts of your career pivotal parts of your career where you have to be self selfish mm. you have to start thinking you know what am i doing you know over a 3 or a 6 or a 12 month period that will deliver for me what i need to go to the next stage mm. of my career gosh i i don't know about other women listening to this but i just huge to massive sigh of relief hearing you say that because you know (laughs) it is a balance and there can often be so many spinning plates and you know in terms of your own life you sound like you're spinning a lot of plates I mean you mentioned motherhood how have you managed to balance all of that well, I think pretty much the same way as lots of other people do, which is it's, um, you know, I heard someone say this. It's not a balance. It's a juggle. You know, it, I don't I don't think my life is ever really in balance. I think it's just whether how how well I'm juggling at that particular time. Um, I think striving for balance is actually like really difficult because you feel like you should be in balance. Right. And you should feel that you should feel mm. that calmness of that balance and you know, I think I'm constantly in that state of, you know, juggling of thinking, let's just make sure, you know, we're as close to balance as we can be at any point in time. Um, So in terms of motherhood, I made the decision uh, that I would uh, work part time. So when I was 
um, pregnant with my first child when I pretty much about the time I found out I was pregnant with my first child, I found out that I'd been awarded a fellowship. And um, I was, you know, like, oh, okay, (laughs) so this is the way life is going (laughs) to going to play out right now. And um, I really, I, you know, I wanted to get pregnant. I was really clear that at that stage of my life, I, you know, I wanted to have a child. Um, and I negotiated a return to work on the basis of going back part time. And at that point, um, in the process of that negotiation, I was told that the, uh, the funding council that had given me the fellowship, that they hadn't had to have that negotiation with anyone else. I was the first person to negotiate um you know, having the fellowship on that basis. And so I guess I went into the negotiation thinking I'm going to ask for everything I could possibly want. And then, you know, I'll start at one position, they'll start another position Mm. and we'll negotiate into some middle position. And pretty much they just accepted my first sort of proposal and said, yeah, okay. So, um, I, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get, I guess. (laughs) Um, and so that enabled me to go back to work um, part time. So I worked part time uh, actually for 18 years. So I had, a, I had another child. I worked three days a week to start with and then um, four days a week. And I managed to get uh, promoted to professor while, whilst I was working part time, even though I was told I wouldn't. I did. And were you actually working part time, or were you working physically part time, but actually full time? Yeah. So every yeah, it's a really good question. Everyone always asks me that. So again, uh, just for context, this was before um, the internet. I guess the email was just coming online. Uh, certainly, no emails on my phone. So if I was not at work, the only way I could connect to my email was through a dial-up modem, <laughs> you know, which was a pretty, pretty painful. You had to be pretty keen to check your email if you had to go through a dial-up modem. So it was a different era. Um, so it was easier in some ways to just cut off from work on the days when I wasn't working. But the caveat that I would always place on that is that I was well aware that just because I was working part time, my deadlines didn't shift right? The deadline was still the deadline. I didn't get extended deadlines for grant applications or, you know, deadlines for submissions for papers. And so there were times when I just um, worked through the night to meet a deadline. Um, But then I would take the time back. I would be really conscious of saying, right, I've, you know, I'm going to take that time back to make sure that over the course of a week or two weeks, I am still working part-time hours. Because, you know, again, a lot of people said to me when I, when I said, I'm going to go part-time, I, I had a huge number of naysayers saying you'll end up being paid part time, working full time. Uh, people will automatically think you're not serious about your science um, and you just won't progress in your career. And again, I guess I was sort of pretty single minded at saying, yeah, but I want to work part time, you know, so everything else is just going to have to, you know, if, if those are the consequences, you know, I'll just have to manage those because I'm not going to change my perspective of working part-time. Gosh, I mean, it's so amazing what opportunities open up when you really love what you do. Yeah, and and maybe I'm sounding pretty bloody-minded, aren't I? Like, I would just say I'm going to do this and sort of, you know, to hell with the consequences. It wasn't quite like that. I think I just knew where my limits were in some ways I hugely admire women that work full-time right I just you know my husband has always worked full-time in a very busy job uh there's the whole commuting thing in there and I just don't think when my kids were really young I could have done that five days a week Mm. um it just wasn't for me and I you know I was fortunate to have a really supportive family around me and financially as well um, I could afford to work part time. So mm. that is not a choice for, for every woman. And, you know, the costs of childcare and traveling. I know for the first few years when I went back to work, I was I was bringing home no money. All of the money that I earned went into traveling and childcare. And I remember thinking then, you know, I'm playing the long game here. You know, mm. I'm not I'm not going back to work uh, to earn money at this point, I'm going back to work to keep my career options open. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned, you know, the opportunities that one has when they really love what I 
they do in the sense that, or when you have such a great expertise in something, it really allows you to open doors, particularly in academia. Yeah, it does. I think, you know, we become quite niche, don't we? Mm. We, we, you know, I, I was able to pursue an interest in a particular technology and at a point where that technology was really um, rapidly um, sort of um, developing and finding new applications. So it was a really exciting time to be involved um, in the evolution of that technology. So I I was lucky in that sense, I think, that I was my, the timing of my entry into that particular area of research was really good. Um, I think also I was really hugely supported by male colleagues. And I always say this because I think it's, you know, for someone like myself, where there were virtually no women doing what I did at that time, I couldn't rely on a female support network. The only people I could rely on to support me professionally were men. And I always, when I look back now and I hear some of the stories of, you know, what what colleagues and, you know, early career researchers are dealing with now, it just makes me even more grateful of the support of male colleagues that I had. Mm. Um, yeah, because relationships with men at work um, is a really complex thing. I mean, women have all kinds of layers of confusion when dealing with men professionally what was your experience like I think again I'm coming back to sort of having had two older brothers um Mm. and I had lots of male friends at university by virtue of the course that I was on so I am quite comfortable around men in that sense I think you know and I guess what I felt as I progressed in my career was the difficulty I felt was when you become, for example, the only woman in the room and you're chairing the meeting. You know, that dynamic is interesting, right? So Mm. you're then presented with a room full of men. And even if it's unconscious bias or not, you don't know how they're going to respond to suddenly having a woman not suddenly, but th- at that point, having a woman, you know, leading mm. them and, you know, really, um, you know, being the voice that's, you know, steering the strategy and the vision for what we want to do. And not all the men that I work with like that. <laughs> um, so that was, you know, that was a struggle. But I think you know, just I guess I have understood men from the perspective of, you know, um, being, you know, um, growing up around them. men, growing up around them. Yeah. And, yeah. And my dad's a very even guy. He's a very even, fair guy. And mm. um, yeah. So uh, but, yeah, there's definitely been, you know, uh, there's been plenty of instances where I've, you know, come across individuals and they just you know, there's been some blatant sexism where they just do not like being told what to do by a woman, for want of a better word, you know? So, yeah. um, and they will they will demonstrate that dislike in a range of different ways. They can just be disruptive in a meeting. They can be um, deliberately sort of obtuse or or can be doing things behind your back that you don't realise they're doing. But it um, sounds like you had the tenacity to push through that and overcome it. Yeah, I think what I have tried to do but it's not always been easy is to understand you know work out who your allies are and it's really really important that you understand who they are and um and you know acknowledge that that their support is going to be really important for you but also wherever possible just call out the bad behavior now that's not easy to do and you know one of the things that I look back on and think I wish I had been much better at was coming up with a quick reply you know to an inappropriate comment or bad behavior in the moment that it happened and I and I still really struggle with that even now because I I feel like after the event I think of all the things I should have said but in the heat of the moment I'm in that zone of you know this has happened to all of us I'm sure it certainly happened to me when I've chaired meetings um, when I'm about to give a talk at a conference or been part of a panel so they can be quite public 
examples of where somebody's behaved badly or said something inappropriately. And you feel in that moment, because you're not expecting it always, sometimes it just comes out of the blue. And in that moment, there's a huge weight of responsibility on you. And what you want to do in the ideal world, in the sort of movie version of your life, right? (laughs) You, You want to have the quick, insightful, precise quip that, that serves to put down the comment and and, and neutralise its impact, not just on you, but on the entire audience, and make the guy feel mm. really small, right? You, but the reality... That's incredibly hard to do. <laughs> and the reality is that you have a choice. You either have to take some of your mental energy to work out what that could be, what the quip is, or you think, I'm here to chair this meeting, to give this talk, to contribute to this panel. And actually, that's my major job. And I'm going to actually make sure that my mental effort is 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 not diverted. And basically from that. keep the peace. Um, and keep the peace, and you know, and uh, yeah, and it's hard, you know. I mean, I I uh, I can think of lots of examples where, you know, I wish I'd have had that quit. But in retrospect, the one thing that I did do was. I didn't let it put me off my stride for what I was there yes. to deliver. Because I think um, when we when we are presented with a situation like that, we actually don't want to be confrontational because in my experience, I don't want further abuse. You know, by being confrontational, you no. open yourself up to harder knocks. And so I'd rather not run that yeah. risk. And so I'd rather just stay mute and just keep it all fair and quiet than actually speak up for myself. And that's when I go home and just think, God, I really should have said X, Y, and Z. Um, But yeah, it's really, yeah. But it's hard. hard. It's really hard, you know. And And often I found it in situations where there's already a heightened sense of focus and concentration, which you need for the things that you're doing. And um you if you let that go the worry is that you're you know you're not you're not you're going to fail at delivering what you're there Mm -hmm. to do and and you're I don't think you ever really win if you like just what you say if you you open up the conversation that Mm. doesn't deserve any oxygen um and but it's hard and I still struggle with that now I still struggle with what how I advise others to deal with those situations um and still if it happens to me just thinking oh, I should be much better at this by now <laughs> yeah I think it's a massive difference between women wanting to be like men and women actually being proud of being women yeah because yeah. I don't think women are naturally confrontational um they can still be assertive and get what they want but not in the same way that men get what they want yeah, I think it's a, I think there's an ego thing in here, and it's desperately stereotypical, right? Just to sort of say, right. yeah. you know, that we are talking in umbrella terms. Exactly. Here. You know, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's hugely relieving to walk into a room of of men that I know well and know me, and we just all know that the egos are left at the door, right? It's yeah. just you know, we're just there's a respect there. for each other. Yeah, and, our and, and, and the other thing I think that's really important here is that I've always w- worked across disciplines. So you know, I've worked between clinical and life science teams and physical science teams, mm. and everyone has their own um, special, spe- yeah, their specialism-based ego. You know, it's like yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, for really good collaborative work, you have to just let that go at the door as well. You just have to sort of have a mutual acknowledgement. We've all passed lots of exams. We've all got letters after our name, you know, mm. we've all done X, Y and Z. But none of that is actually important for what we have to do in the next hour and a half, which is to come up for, with the strategy for moving this project forward, you know. Um, and I've you know, those those are the um, the situations at work that I really thrive on. I think when you know where everyone is just focusing on what we need to do to move things forward, rather than who's in the room. Um, mm, yeah, I mean, as a woman in physics, then medical physics, do you feel like there is this unconscious bias then towards women? And if you do feel that that exists, um, do you think, uh, I don't want to say men, I don't want to stereotype men, but 
Do you think attitudes need to change? Yeah, so we had an interesting conversation just in the last few weeks um, around events that we're currently planning and running to support women in our uh, own department um, and faculty, where we just assumed as a group of women that men got that there were these issues. They, they understood that it can be pretty intimidating for a woman to walk into a room full of men. Someone gave an example of walking into a, a committee where there were 40 men and she was the only woman or of, you know, chairing a meeting where you're the only woman in the room. Um, and then we were ha- unwrapping these conversations with some male colleagues and they were like, yeah, but that's not a thing for you, is it? And I'm like, yeah, no, that is a real big thing. Right. You know, <laughs> you really, yeah, you know, that is a real thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to take, you have to take a few deep breaths to do that. And they're like, really? Yeah. You know, oh because they see they see women do it, and they mm. think, "Oh, well, that must be okay for them," because they've come in, they've been really well, and they're good. So therefore, and what they don't see is the anxiety uh, mm. that you have before you have to do those things, while you're doing them, and then the whole download afterwards, where you go over the conversations or the things that you've done, and think, "Could I have done that one way? Could I have done that one way?" You know. Um, I'm not saying men don't do that, but the whole added layer of being, you know, in a minority in the room. And so we've decided that we're not, you know, we we need to discuss these things more openly rather than just making them look easy. Does that make sense? Rather than making them look like, oh, we see that that's a problem, but we're going to work through it. It's, Mm. you know, we've really got to say. Get it out in the open. Get it out in the open and and actually bring men into the conversation and give them practical suggestions without being patronising, but give them practical suggestions for just how they can make that situation easier. Mm. Do you think we'd come across as moany, though, if we say, yeah, it's pretty intimidating? Yeah, I I know. It's a really delicate balance of, you know, you don't want to just keep moaning on about things. Um, But equally, you know, you want people to understand where the differences are and you know the whole conference you know I've been to some conferences it's a particular type of conference that's in my discipline where the whole basis of the conference is based around a sort of I would say a 1950s ethic of how you could get men all together and you know the way in which the accommodation is set up and the sort of the the hours of the conference and also um you know, all the events and all the activities outside of the the conference in terms of the the non-academic activities, but just very male-based, I think, male-focused, you know. And I've Mm. been to a couple of those conferences and I felt really uncomfortable. And I thought, why does this conference feel so uncomfortable? And I just thought about the, the sort of genesis of that type of conference and thought, because it has been set up by men for men. And I don't think they're doing that to exclude people. They just don't realise that it's just not very inclusive and it makes other people feel uncomfortable, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's describing many aspects of our society, that it's been set up by men for men. Yeah, Um, yeah. And And I'm much more sensitive to that now than I ever used to be. I think I do. I do have to admit that I think that during part of my career, I remember thinking, I'm just going to keep my head down and and just yeah. do what I can to keep moving forward. And in retrospect, now I probably had some male behaviours, right? I was probably becoming more male in my behaviour because that was the environment that I was working in. And I, I maybe that was the easiest way to get things done mm. or to be respected or to be heard. And I look now and think, no, that is not the way this should be done. And only the other day someone said to me, you know, um, these are the metrics for academic success and blah, blah, blah. We need to make sure people understand these. And I'm like, no, we probably need to rewrite the metrics, actually. You know, that's probably what we need to do. I mean, Um, whatever male characteristics you may have adopted to succeed in your professional career, thank God it hasn't actually stopped you doing very womanly things like becoming a mum well yeah and I you know I'm uh you know I don't consider myself I don't think my friends um male or female would consider me you know like uh you know a very male type woman does that yeah, make sense masculine. <laughs> just a weird way of it, but yeah. you know I mean um 
so yeah I but I think that's also sort of part of knowing yourself right that you you need to you need to know the things that you know enable you to keep that balance Mm. um uh, and just knowing that if you have a day I mean you know if I have days where I'm chairing meetings or I'm doing things that I really feel you know are going to take a particular amount of energy of that type of energy from me you know, I will make sure that I have something that will balance, you know, some yeah. sporting activity or some other thing yeah. that I do that will allow me to just unwind from all of that. So I don't bring all that home with me because that's just not very pleasant, I think, for everyone yeah. around you at home. I mean, this question might be a bit woo-woo, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> um, Go for it. You know, some people listening may not have, like, maybe supportive parents or just people that they can lean on um how would you suggest developing a strong sense of self gosh that's a really hard question um I think there's I don't know uh there's something about vulnerability in there which is a really awkward thing for people to want to discuss um and it's I think you have to sort of start understanding your vulnerabilities to understand the things that you need to strengthen you does that make sense right so if you feel that you need to think about your sense of self what is it about yourself that unsettles you you know uh and so you have to sort of go to that place in yourself and think about Mm. the stuff that no no, none of us want to think about which is Mm. the things that we don't think we're particularly proud of or we don't do particularly well um and just sort of own them a little bit you know and think um you know let me like if if it was if it was a scientific experiment you'd look through the methodology of your experiment and say yeah we really could do better in this area you know of measurement or we could do better in the way in which we're analyzing or you know you'd lay it all out and say right if we're going to do this experiment again this is where we can strengthen our Mm. methodology right it's almost like you need to do that you need to be brave enough to just lay it out and just admit that you know there are some areas where you know you you could do with a little bit more work on yourself um so an example of that could be if you're a physics female student and you feel really uncomfortable speaking up about your answers um mm. then explore that you know push yourself to speak up yeah yeah so you know I was speaking at a, a pretty big event the other day and the person who was introducing me, who, who was female, um, had said that she'd stayed up, you know, a lot of the night before because she had to read my biography out and she had to make an introduction. And then she was chairing the questions afterwards. Mm-hmm. And um, she because I saw that she was a bit nervous and, and I said, you know, I'm really nervous, too. I'm really nervous. And she said, yeah, but I had to stay up all night making sure I said, yeah, I stayed up quite late last night, making sure that I got my slides right and you know, that I got my story for my talk together and that I thought about the possible questions I might get. And she said, oh, my God, I can't believe that, you know, we were both up at the same time worrying about the same event. And I thought, you know, you're so much more experienced than me. And I'm like, no, no, I realise that I get nervous before I do public speaking. And I know that the way that I can really moderate those nerves or manage those nerves is by dedicating a good amount of time to preparation you know, and that I know that for me, that helps, you know, contain my nerves. So I've just realised that that's what I need to do. So, you know, I said for you, it was a really positive thing that you stayed up last night and really practised doing what you would have to do on stage, because hopefully you do feel more comfortable about doing it now. So, yeah. Um, but if we constantly have these role models where we just see people succeeding all the time, getting up and making everything look effortless... I think it's just massively intimidating for early career scientists, you know, that they they can't imagine that they're ever going to feel like that. So showing a bit of vulnerability in yourself and saying, yeah, this is tough. I'm nervous. You know, I need to prepare for this. It's it's not just a walk in the park, you know. I absolutely couldn't agree with you more. And it's just been an absolute pleasure listening to your honesty and your vulnerability, actually. 
in everything we've discussed over this hour. And um, oh, I, I've learned so much from you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and um, sharing your story with us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for asking me. That's it from my STEM guest this week. Gosh, what a key message of knowing yourself and and learning all about yourself. Uh, My guest this week has really inspired me and given me the motivation to keep going and really understanding who we are because in, in getting to know yourself, you can really approach your life with passion and authentic interest in what you do. And the sky's the limit if you're able to to really live that kind of honesty thank you so much for listening this week don't forget to rate and review the show and catch you next week on silence